Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So welcome to Insight LA, Long Beach Sunday Sit. My name is Casey. Um, well, happy to be back. I am... Um, you know, we rotate, and I caught a little cold, and so I missed that one. Then we had a wonderful guest teacher last week, so it's been a while. So I'm very happy to be back, and it's always nice to feel that sense of of um, right attachment, as Buddha would call. We have um, obviously non-attachment, but there's also something called right attachment, which is attachment to uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and to really feel like oh, I missed the Sangha. <laughs> and um, so I think that's really precious. So I definitely did. Um, so today, um, I would love to explore with you uh, devotion, the role of devotion. And we could chat a little bit about it, but also maybe we could explore experientially uh, the role of devotion in our practice. I'm going to start out just by the mundane definition I pulled from the internet of devotion. Devotion is love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or cause. Love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or cause. So, we can't do much, I think, in the practice without some sort of devotion, at least to the path itself, right? And that kind of takes up the entirety of, of the path, to have some kind of love and, and enthusiasm for the actual practice. We're not going to get very far. Also, too, I want to just start off by saying when we, like all of conceptual reality, when we say a word, everyone's going to have a different um, meaning for that, what it means to them. So the word devotion, we will dive a little bit deeper into this, but this is devotion for a few different things. For one is that the main piece is the devotion for, to truth. This is the main piece, devotion to truth. Dharma, Sanskrit for truth. So without this, well, everything... Uh, if we go through devotion to the teacher or devotion or we'd say compassion for all beings is another way to explore devotion on our path, right? Um, so I, I posted a quote. Um, Ergen Rinpoche was saying that you know, this devotion, love and compassion comes from either devotion to enlightened beings or compassion to unenlightened beings, mm-hmm. right? So these are the two forms of devotion and we all connect differently to this. So some people might think, to, you know, compassion for all sentient beings and to have the bodhicitta arise, I need to reach enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. This is something that's very far-fetched and I really can't comprehend that or that doesn't really connect with me. So for another person, for, for that person, having devotion to an enlightened being, which is holding on, of course, the, the reminder of our own enlightenment. But that's more tangible and more accessible. So for that type of inclination, then we move towards 
towards that. Yet all of those, either way, and, and always a reminder too, that having compassion for unenlightened beings is compassion for our, ourselves as well, even though we're already enlightened, for the unenlightened aspect, the suffering aspect, the ignorant aspect, that which is ignorant to our own divinity. So having that self-compassion for ourselves as well. Yet those two are really a devotion to truth. And I'm going to read a quote, um, maybe a couple, but one is from Zongsar Kensei. He says, Approaching the Dharma without devotion is like landing on an island of golden pebbles, yet having no hands with which to gather them. I'll read that again. Approaching the Dharma without devotion is like landing on an island of golden pebbles, yet having no hands with which to gather them. And this, this devotion to truth is just like that, where we are on an island of golden pebbles, if you will. Like we have this treasure within us of enlightened, non-suffering, non-grasping, non-attached <clears throat> mind, this pristine peace. Yet, we don't have, well, we would say in Tibetan Buddhism, the merit to, to actualize that. And so it's much like we ever, I think all of us had the experience of, of trying to help a friend, a loved one, somebody in need. But have you ever had the experience that you know that you could help somebody or they could help themselves or something, but they just cannot receive it? You ever have that? And you look at and you're like, man, there's not even that you could help them, but there's so many resources for them to have to gain that assistance and to be relieved of that, whatever that suffering might be. But you ever have that experience where they cannot see it, they cannot access it, right? We've all had that. And so and the enlightened ones are looking at us like this, saying, why can't you access this? Here it is. Here is the freedom right here. It's right in front of you. It's, you are it. You cannot stray from it. Yet, for some reason, sometimes we forget it, right? And fall into suffering. So the merit is what we need to, to see. And the merit is gained through devotion and through compassion. So this is just clearing our vision, purifying the vision, and all of a sudden, it just automatically appears like this, oh yeah, that's right. And so, um, and again, this has many different levels, but I'll just, just one in the Vajrayana path of Tibetan Buddhism, where the teacher is very, very prominent, right, in that, in that path. And guru devotion is very, very prominent. 
So in that way, this is very direct. It's a literal translation, just like when you're trying to help somebody else, right? So through the devotion of the teacher, through our pure devotion and seeing them as the Buddha, they have direct access to helping you. Right? And this is this ultimate surrender, right? When we totally surrender, then there's access. And they could even, in that tradition, they could even point out your true nature of mind. It's very direct. They even call it pointing out. They point out your true nature. It's very direct. But it comes with a surrender of devotion. And yet, like all of them, whether you're accessing devotion through compassion for all unenlightened beings, all beings, all sentient beings, all beings attain enlightenment, right? It's a sense of surrender because it's a selflessness. This is why compassion and emptiness are synonymous, right? Is that it's always selflessness. Well, whether it's selflessness because you're surrendering to a physical teacher, it's selflessness because you're giving your, the entirety of your, of your whole being up to the benefit of all beings each and every moment. It's selflessness. And that selflessness is truth. It's the truth of no permanent solid self. This is the truth. And when we look deeply, we see this. And when there's a dissolution of self, then we blend with all beings. And when we have compassion arising for self and others, it's just, it just is. It just arises effortlessly. Here's that quote from Ergen Rinpoche. True love can be either devotion to enlightened beings or compassion for enlightened beings. In the moment when you totally give up any selfish attachment and the mind is filled only with devotion or compassion, there is no concept that can make the realization of emptiness stray into some sidetrack. That's the ultimate safeguard. To experience a realization of emptiness suffused with compassion. That's why the sutra system of Buddhism says that the true path of enlightenment is the unity of compassion and insight into emptiness. There's a very important point when he talks about the safeguard of emptiness. Emptiness, especially when it stays in the conceptual realm, like non-dualism, very dangerous, because it could turn into nihilism and indifference. Oh, everything's empty, nothing matters. All phenomena are empty upon arising. We can move into this indifference, like nothing matters. How do you know that you're on the right track? Is always through the spontaneously arising compassion in your heart. Like, that's how you know. If, if compassion is not arising, then it's whatever insight you may have had. Maybe you've had some uh, insight into uh, empty aspects of phenomena, but it's not authentic. It's still within the conceptual realm, right? Compassion is spontaneously arising. When everything is surrendered, it's there waiting for us, uncult uncultivated and uncontrived. Nothing needs to be done. 
In the meantime, absolutely, we work with generating more compassion, loving kindness. But at the ultimate state, it's automatically present and automatically there. So I think that the cultivation of, of devotion itself takes practice itself, right? So, so we say, yes, okay, devotion is fantastic. But even before devotion, we have to have a level of faith. That even comes before devotion. And one of the first things that we could do is just read up and study the teachers and their, their biographies. This is like one of the first things that we could do, even like before we... Um, it's like if we get attracted to a sport or whatnot, we want to see where we're going. Like, what's, um, uh, what's a professional look like? Mountain bike ride or something, I don't know. Like, you, you, you actually you get into it, right? Before you become something, let's say if you get into a sport, you might see it on TV or your friend does it, right? And then you're like, wow, I want to I do that. Like yoga, for example. You see all those awesome Instagram pictures of people bending over backwards. I don't know. And you're like, I want to do that. Um, I want to be flexible like that. Although that's, that's more to yoga. But um, So at first, you're like, what is, what's that look like? You know, for me, it was just these tangible examples of these teachers and how they relate to others. Like, I just, to this day, I just want their, their kindness. It's amazing being able to live at the centers and seeing these living examples of these beings that have this, what look like to me, unlimited capacity to love. It was just seemed like unending. And I've always thought, well, I, I want that. Like, I want that. And then they would say, well, this is how I did it. And so, okay, even though I have no idea that's true or not, I had faith. I had, well, okay, this is how they said they did it. So there's faith there. So if our, cult, our, our cultivation of devotion is lacking, read up and see what's possible. And I know one um, instance, especially in Buddhism, is that they can't talk about, the monks and nuns, the monastics cannot talk about their realizations. They cannot say. But you could definitely observe their happiness and their kindness, right? This is in full display, like all the time, right? And we could see the peacefulness in that. So we have faith, but faith doesn't really become devotion until we actually put into practice what they have given us and felt the result. So this is, this is when faith moves in. So we need to have a lot of faith until we try it for ourselves and then it works and then we're like, oh yeah. <laughs> like we have that aha moment. Yeah, it's like a diet plan. Someone <laughs> says, I lost weight like this or something. And then you can imagine if you do it, and you see the results, and then, okay, now it's embodied. It's embodied. This is where devotion takes hold. When you see the benefit in your life. Then you could surrender more and more. The more benefit you see, the more you surrender, because the more you trust, right? 
and your faith deepens to the point where you're just, okay, I'm fully, I'm fully in, mm-hmm. right? I fully surrender. I fully have faith in this. And so we could, we could watch. So it's, it's just a matter of, as far as our self-guru and our self-teaching, to kind of know where we are on that spectrum. You know, do I need to cultivate a little bit more faith? Do I have doubt? Right? It's one of the main hindrances, yeah? Attachment, aversion, torpor, wariness, doubt. And doubt is the most dangerous of the hindrances. And it's the most dangerous because doubt could take us off course completely. That's the one that could take us off course completely. If we start doubting ourselves, and that's the main one, it's also dangerous to, to continuously keep doubting your, your path. Yeah, Discernment, very good. But completely doubting the path, then we never get deeper. We just stay horizontal and jump around from one thing to the next, yeah? And then we stick with one thing long enough until it really connects. And then we go deeper. Boom. Then it keeps just going deeper, yeah? That's where we want to be. And if you do your due diligence in the beginning, like many paths, Christianity been around for you know, a couple thousand years, uh, Buddhism, 2,500 years. These things have been long-lasting traditions, so they have a good foundation, yeah? Hinduism, all those things, great foundation. So you do your discernment, and then you you do your discernment with a teacher, a path, and then just hang in there. (laughs) Then just do it, you know? I've said this story before of um, oh, I remember, I forget the sect of Himalayan, there's a sect of Himalayan yogis, and um, they're really beautiful beings, and, and there was a teacher that went up and actually got a private audience with them, and they were all sitting around, and, and they were highly, highly, highly revered, lots of realization, and they kept telling her, they said, yeah, you know what we do? Like, you know what our practice is? She's like, no, what's your practice? He's like, oh, same thing, like take refuge, do breath meditation, do compassion. He's like, there's nothing, there's nothing different from what we do compared to what is taught in every Dharma center around the world. There's no different what we do. The only difference is that we do it. That's the only difference. He says, we have no secret teachings. We have no high tantras. We have no empowerments. Nothing. That's it. But we, we are very, very dedicated. They are very, very devoted. And this is a moment-to-moment devotion. When we're devoted to truth, then we really, really want to know when that emotion arises... Is it true? When that thought arises, is it true? That thought that tells us that we're suffering, is it true? Right? It's a moment-to-moment decision of connecting with truth. This anger that arises, is it true? This hate that arises, is it true? 
This separateness that arises, is it true? This loneliness that arises, is it true? It's a commitment. Is it true? Is it? Every single moment, we're looking. Totally, totally committed. Totally devoted to truth. Right? Truth addict. There's a Rage Against the Machines song. <laughs> and it says, I'm a truth addict. Aw, shit, here comes a head rush. <laughs> right? Just face tr truth. And this is what Buddha was saying. The first noble truth. The truth of suffering. And then also, when it, going on to the, the truth of cessation through non-attachment. So, and then in this way, in more the Theravada path, so more the Tibetan path is, the Vajrayana path is more devotion towards the guru, the teacher. In the Theravada path, it's more devotion towards the three jewels, right? The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And once we take refuge, you know, what are we taking, for one, what are we taking refuge from? Right? We acknowledge that there's something to take refuge from, right? We're taking refuge from samsara. We're like, wow, it's just like, just like the analogy of being caught in a storm. You know, you have to take refuge somewhere. You have to go into, get shelter, right? Get warm, right? So obviously we're acknowledging already there's something to take refuge from, yeah? And then when this storm of life comes, we take refuge in the Buddha, right? In the outer Buddha, in the inner Buddha, in the secret, right? There's three levels of that. There's three levels of this, um, well, in Tibetan, of more guru devotion. The, the outer, the outer Buddha, and then the inner, which is the nature of our own mind, and the secret is the empty essence of all phenomena. The inner and outer in secret. So it's like this with the three jewels as well. Taking refuge in the Buddha, the inner Buddha of our own true nature and mind. Taking refuge in the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching, but in, that we already are the teaching. And then the Sangha. All of our Sangha, and then also we're connected to the Sangha ourselves. So this is the devotion in the more Theravada path. Chogyam Chumpa used to say, in the Theravada path, devotion is, is like a panic. <laughs> he used to say, it's like, like when you wake up, like, oh my gosh, I'm suffering. Like, I, it's like a panic. Like, I really, really need help. Um, and, uh, and actually, that's a really fantastic place to be, because we have to at first have the diagnosis. Without the diagnosis then we don't even know that we need help. And it's just like that person that 
we were talking about in the beginning that might have a really gross example of suffering that we're saying, I really, really want to help you, but we can't. And just like that, you know, we're suffering, but we really can't see it. it in a, we're, more, ours is more subtle suffering of, of attachment and aversion that can, continues. I told a story, maybe I told it last time, but it's such a funny story and it fits right in, is that um, Alan Wallace was with a group of students and they were sitting with a Rinpoche and Rinpoche was telling a story of true action bodhicitta and there was a water buffalo stuck in the mud and the students were surrounding the water buffalo and they were like praying for the water buffalo. And of course the master comes, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, jump in the mud and get the water buffalo out of the mud. You know, like this is, I mean, this is an example of bodhicitta cannot, cannot stay just in the relative realm. We have to do something with it, right? With our compassion, compassion and action, right? And so Helen Wallace was saying, well, you know, what are we, like as a sangha, like are we, do you think Rinpoche we're doing enough? Are we... Have, do we have compassion and action, or are we just staying and just in the relative level? And the Rinpoche looked at him and the Sangha, and he says, you're the water buffalo. <laughs> and he's like, oh. <laughs> uh, but again, it's just this realization, right? So from the Rinpoche's eyes, they're still locked in to the conceptual cycle of, of suffering. They're not free yet themselves, right? And of course they have aspirations to free others, but the aspiration is to free ourselves for the benefit of all beings. That's the aspiration, how it's read. May I free myself for the benefit of all beings. Right? We cannot free other beings, truly, without freeing ourselves. And a lot of times we kind of jump the gun a little bit right? Try to help others when we're not fully, fully there ourselves, which is good, good aspiration. But we see individuals, like I mentioned, the Christ, the Krishnas, these saints and sages that have really, really liberated themselves. You see how they're still liberating beings thousands of years later? Like there's some, there's something, they've cut the root, right? They've not just chopped off the branches of suffering. They've cut the very root of suffering. And this connects very deeply to all beings everywhere at all times. It's very, very strong. Very, very strong. And the very root, the cut, is the root of the idea of a permanently existing self. Right? No self, no problem. As Adam Dukin says, no self, no problem. That's the very root. Right? And we could do this through immense compassion that we see we're all beings. When our heart is completely taken over and seized by the force of devotion, then self does not have any power to maintain its composure. Ego just dies right there on the spot. 
without dismantling the self into tiny pieces and investigating whether they are real or not, there is no time for analytical meditation. There is no time to prepare to transcend the self. Self is gone the moment our heart is completely taken over by the spirit of devotion. When our heart is completely taken over and seized by the force of devotion, then self does not have any power to maintain its composure. Ego just dies right there on the spot. Without dismantling the self into tiny pieces and investigating whether they are real or not, there is no time for analytical meditation, no time to prepare to transcend the self, self is gone. The moment our heart is completely taken over by the spirit of devotion. Anantutan. That beautiful. Mm -hmm. so, you know, we want it's um sometimes you want like this you know magical technique and whatnot, and it is so amazing the magical technique of loving kindness. How the whole ego could vanish in a moment, right? This is a funny one. Zongsar Kensei is a very he's a contemporary lama, and he has these great analogies. I'm going to read you this one analogy of him talking about how it works with the guru-student devotion. Um, I'm sorry, relationship in the Vajrayana path. Being a very devoted and diligent student, you practice drinking. In the talking about if you learn how to be a good drinker from like your your drinking guru. Like your bartender guru. <laughs> Being a very devoted and diligent student, you practice drinking. In the beginning, it burns your throat, it hurts your stomach, and you get drunk. You vomit, and you get up the next morning with a headache. With lots of enthusiasm, you keep doing this. <laughs> this is what I call foundation practice. You keep going to this person, and even though he occasionally gives you a hard time, it doesn't matter, you are a diligent student. Then, one day, your mind and his mingle. You know everything about alcohol, and you know how to drink. At this point, you are a perfect lineage holder of alcohol drinking, and you can begin to teach others. Uh, it's like that. <laughs> So maybe we'll sit for a moment um, and just allow this to flow in. And I'll think I'll just say one last thing is that you know in Tibet they talk about you don't ever pick a meditation cave with a north north facing entrance because the light can't get in can't come in right and. And they use that analogy, analogy, because without the head of devotion, there's a saying, <coughs> devotion is the head of meditation, as is taught. So devotion, without devotion, it's like having a cave with a north-facing entrance. The light can't come in. So we, I need, we need to at least be facing the right way if we want the blessings of the practice to come in. And without compassion, without devotion, you can't connect. You can't. It's like a hook, they say. 
So just coming into a meditative posture. important piece of this is what devotion feels like for us and so maybe just you could stay with the analytical piece in the beginning here in your own path just reflect how is devotion arising for me is it more on the compassionate side myself and all, all beings is it more directed towards a teacher or maybe reflect maybe I need a little bit more faith my devotion is not that strong right now I have some doubts Just be completely open and honest there's no right answer just checking in with yourself And then when you're ready at your own pace, just allowing the feeling of devotion to arise, maybe remembering an instance, a person, a teacher. It doesn't even need to be a spiritual teacher or a thing. Just connecting to devotion itself. Recalling that instance or person, situation. Where do you feel it in the body? How does it arise for you? What is the experience and devotion? How does that feel?
and see if you can move more and more into the felt sense of devotion beyond whatever trigger or object is attached to it. Or even your idea about it. Now being with it from the neck down. What is devotion? And just simply through your attention alone and just see if you can allow this devotion to strengthen. You may need to turn up the volume on your concentration and effort, just sustaining your awareness of the felt sense of devotion.
I forget what sutta this is from. This is from a, a Theravada aspect. When a noble disciple contemplates upon the enlightened one, at that time his mind is not enwrapped in lust, nor hatred, nor delusion. At such a time his mind is rightly directed towards the perfected one. And with a rightly directed mind, the noble disciple gains enthusiasm for the goal, enthusiasm for the Dharma, gains the delight derived from the Dharma. In him, thus delighted, joy arises. To one who is joyful, body and mind become calm. Calmed in body and mind, he feels at ease. And if at ease, the mind finds concentration. Such a one is called a noble disciple, for among humanity gone wrong has attained to what is right, who among a humanity beset with troubles dwells free of troubles. And so, you know, that is a sutta from, you know, thousands of years ago, which is just goes beautifully in line with that Anam Tukten quote, when our heart is completely taken over and seized by the force of devotion, then self does not have any power to maintain its composure. And, and when that happens, all those things, the joy arises, the calm, the peace, the equanimity, and then we fall easily into the jhanas, you know, this meditative stability arises so, so naturally. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.